0: This morning I want to share something that I hope would shift a little bit of your identity. It's not an encouragement, it's just an adjustment that if you understand what I share, maybe part of the way you view yourself in relationship to God would be changed a little bit. Maybe not drastically, maybe drastically. I want to speak about whose slave you are. You see, we live in a world that speaks a lot about freedom. I don't know if you've realized that, but in the last 10, 20, 30, 40 years, democratic countries talk about the freedom that their democracy provides for their citizens. They talk about free countries, meaning countries that have people who rule not under a dictatorship or not under something oppressive like the Taliban in Afghanistan, but where people are more or less free and they, they exalt that, they exalt that model. and. Uh, And yet, in a world that speaks a lot about freedom, there seems to be very little of it. If you were in the, the USA right now, I think you'd see various battlefronts for freedom and rights. They link the two ideas together. And you'll be finding many minorities that want fair representation so that they have their freedom too, in however they want to live their lives. The world actually has been fighting for freedom for decades in terms of democracy and their philosophies. And it can't make sense of the paradox that the more they fight for freedom, the less there seems to be. Take, for example, the gap between the rich and the poor. They're doing all kinds of affirmative action and uh, black economic empowerment in South Africa, and they still find that the majority of the wealth sits in a minority of the population. And it's not just a black-white thing, but it's partly that. partly historical, but it's also just stuff that they, no matter how, how hard they try, they can't seem to change it, they can't make it possible for there to be more equality, which means some people are slaves to poverty and others are slaves to riches, enslaved to their possessions and bound up in fortresses with houses that are three stories high and electric fences that are almost as high. So the world can't make sense of this paradox that the more we try to make freedom, the more oppression we as human beings seem to produce. And you look at the world, you'll see that's the case. The more the voice cries for freedom, the more you notice and see developing oppression in society. Australia faced an interesting little vote recently. They had this thing called the voice where they wanted to give a vote, not actually a vote, the vote was to see whether they would create this vehicle called The Voice, which would give the indigenous peoples a voice into parliament. Now it's not as if the aboriginal or indigenous people of Australia can't run for government, they can. So there's not segregation or apartheid, but they wanted to add an extra, or some people wanted to add an extra voice into parliament to speak up for the indigenous peoples. They didn't even know what the outcome of that vehicle would be, it was a liberal move, made by people who don't actually understand that by putting all this defence in place for these so-called marginalised people, they are creating a bigger barrier between the two groups. Common sense prevailed and the people voted no, the population of Australia voted no to creating this voice Of course, all the liberals are offended because they believe now the Aboriginal or Indigenous people will be more neglected than ever while they're having a door closed on them. They don't realize that if they had their way, they would have created an endless difference or separation between the Indigenous people and the rest of Australia's society. So, the world has ways of trying to deal with problems and when they think this is the solution, the solution invariably backfires because there's something else they don't understand. So the world cannot make sense of this paradox that the more we try to make freedom, the more oppression we produce. The world aims at liberation of the individual propped up by human rights that have taken on idolatrous proportions. It says freedom is this high goal and the individual has entitlement to inviolable rights, rights that you're not allowed to violate. Human rights are worshipped, and hope and trust is exercised in secularism to lead us to freedom and happiness. That's how the world thinks. It basically says if we only enforce human rights, we're going to have this freedom, and we just, they just don't see it happening. We're not one bit closer to a world where everyone is free and everyone is happy. I don't get depressed. That's just, don't put your hope in these things. Interestingly, however, the Bible does make sense of this paradox. The Bible does make sense of this seeming contradiction. The Bible suggests that autonomy of the individual is not the goal, nor even possible. That's rough for you individualists out there who want to be chief of your own life. But the Bible suggests that autonomy of the individual is not the goal, and it's not, not even possible. The Bible says we are all slaves, we were not created to be self-gods, but worshipers. You, understand? you need to understand this. You're not created to be self-determining. You're not created to be a self-god. You're actually by nature and design a worshipper. You were created to worship. That's how God made human beings. Human beings are created to worship something, someone. We worship what we love, that's what we do, and what we love becomes our master. That's how it works. Think about it for a moment. You worship what you love, what you love has this potential to become your master. This is immediately apparent from texts like Luke 16 verse 13, which we all know by now if you've been a Christian for any period of time. No servant can serve two masters. It says in Luke 16 verse 13. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other. Or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now normally we put that as a comparison between God and money. And uh, I just want to point out the fact that there's a presupposition Jesus puts forward in that verse. That you're going to be serving something. So there you are. You're not autonomous, self-determining, individual, self-God. Your life actually is going to be enslaved to something. It's going to be enslaved to God or enslaved to money. You cannot serve two masters. You're going to have a master. You're going to have a master. Who's your master? Whose slave are you? Of course, there are many things that can enslave us. I was just reading this morning about the death of Matthew Perry, the actor from Friends. He died at age 54 in his bathtub yesterday or day before. It's tragic. The guy was a, a, a talented actor, a good guy. He impacted many people through his contribution in that uh, TV sitcom. And he, in his own book, apparently he said he couldn't even really remember the last three seasons of Friends because he was drunk most of the time that they were recording those last three seasons. He spent 30 years of his life fighting various addictions. His colon burst because of opioid abuse in his life. He nearly died a few years ago. He survived and now either he overdosed or he took his own life. But either way, he was serving something that destroyed him. From the time that he had more money than he knew what to do with, he became addicted to substances. His whole life he was enslaved, his whole life. Now that should serve as a warning to any of you, alcohol can kill you, drugs can kill you. You will be their slave if you allow them to be your master, it's that simple. Galatians 4 verse 9 says, now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Like the Galatians were wandering from the gospel back into legalism and starting to follow the the, the wrong paths again. And Paul writes to them and he says, you used to be part of weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. You were their slave. So these guys had been set free, but they were turning back to something other than God and the freedom that came from the gospel. So there's one possibility there that you could become a slave to the law, a slave to like a moralistic approach to God, where your works must justify you and you must be, he uh, must have some kind of a self righteousness to give you your right standing before God. So. Paul was saying, that's slavery. You shouldn't turn back to it. Titus 2 verse 3 says, Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. Do you know who drinks most wine? Well, if you look at these modern yappies in the West, it's often the working woman in her 30s or 40s who's under too much pressure to cope and she's medicating herself every evening with a few glasses of wine. She's enslaved. You can read about some people's story and uh, it's tragic because they, they're living a normal life on the outside but they're barely coping on the inside. In South Africa, I think in the Khosa tribe where I grew up in the Transkei, which is no longer the Transkei; it's now the Eastern Cape. The woman used to drink excessively. They drank wine. It was just their thing. So in the Bible times it was like that too. Older women you always thought it was just young party guys drinking. But it could be the older woman should not be slaves to much wine. It's maybe because some of them can't put up with their husbands anymore. <laughs> Titus 3 verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Wow. So, it's a miserable scene. Romans 6 explains this in more general theological terms. Listen to what Romans 6 verse 16 to 22 says. This is a longer passage. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Paul says that you're going to be enslaved, so be enslaved to that which is good. Present yourself, your members, he means your, your, the parts of your body, yourself, to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. There was no burden on you to do good. You just served your flesh. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? There's a question. What do you get from the world? What do you get from that extra whatever it is that you can't live without? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So when you are a slave of God, you're heading for fruit that leads to sanctification, which is good and eternal life. So Paul understood we were set free from slavery to sin, in order to become slaves to righteousness. Sin was our master and now God is our master. I put that back in the light of my question, could I go back to South Africa? Not unless God says so. I might really want to. I don't by the way, I'm just making jokes about that. It's very nice there, but God is my master. Is God your master? When you come to making big decisions in your life, you're actually going to vote with your, your thought process and your choice and actions, you're going to vote on whether God is your master or not. For example, when you meet the girl of your dreams and then you don't pray about marrying her and you marry her anyway because you're too scared to ask God what he thinks, then you're saying, God, you're not my master. But when you go to God with big decisions, prayerfully, and say, Lord, help me make the choice that honors you. Not my will, but yours be done. And you follow him that way with your life, then he's your master, you're proving it. You're going to decide to go take another job, that's quite a big decision. Did you submit it to God? You're going to move to another town, it's a big decision, did you submit it to God? You're going to decide what to wear tomorrow morning, just put on whatever you like. Like one person joked, God's your father not your mother, He's not going to tell you what to wear. You know? Every day you're super spiritually, if you go to the closet and you open up, God speak to me. What shirt should I wear today? There must be some supernatural anointing that's going to come with the shirt. No, I don't mean you have to submit every decision but your attitude should be that of submission. In a deep, down-rooted way, your attitude should be submitted to God. So when it comes to the big decision, and for some God, buying a car is that big decision. You want God's favor when you make that decision. You don't want to purchase a lemon. But maybe He gets you a lemon anyway to teach you some other lesson. That's just how God leads us as a father. He sometimes lets us have some tough situations to deal with. But your attitude should be, God, in the big decisions of my life, you rule, not me. You rule, not me. I want to quit my job. I remember when I was working for a, I won't say, it, maybe the guy even listens to this message one day, and I say some obsessive, compulsive psycho. He was a fairly unstable guy, but he was a good guy, but he was difficult to work with. And I wanted to quit my job, and I said, God, please. Let me out of this job. I'm looking for other jobs. I can't find anything. There's no peace in my heart about leaving that job. Somewhere deep inside, I know God saying, not yet. It was like two more years before the Lord opened a door for me to leave that trying, testing, tyrannical boss. And while I was there to the last day, I served Him with respect. I did not leave before I left. So... Paul viewed this concept that I'm talking about as something fundamental to his identity and that's what I want for you I want you to view this idea of being a slave as being fundamental to who you are see in Romans 1 verse 1 Paul writes Paul a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God can you see the who Paul is part of that. Who is Paul? If I asked you before showing you the answer, the verse, this was a test and I said, who's Paul, you would say he's an apostle. But you got it wrong. It says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. Apostle is more like his job and servant is more like who he is. You see how Paul writes that. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul it, it writes again in Philippians. Philippians 1 verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus' house of greetings. I'm paraphrasing. Anyway, so he says he and Timothy are servants of Christ Jesus. Now this word that we translate to the word servant is actually the Greek word doulos. And doulos isn't just the name of a ship. Doulos... Is the Greek word for servant, and the Greek word doulos actually comes from a phrase which means to bind, to, to to bind. You know, bind is to tie up. So if you think of being like tied to something, you're stuck to it. It's not voluntary. You're not free. If I tie you up, you're not gonna feel free. You're gonna feel like you're in hand. Handcuffs and the police arrest you. Do you feel free? You want to escape and then they taser you. You're not free. That's what the word doulos means. That's what the word servant means. When Paul says I'm a servant. He says I am bound to Christ. I am bound to Christ. Are you living your life as one who is bound over to Christ? In fact this was the word from which we get bond slave, and it had a particular meaning for Paul. It was Paul's favorite designation of himself, and that of of being a bond slave of Jesus Christ. His apostleship came second to the idea that he's a bond slave. And whatever ministry you do, whatever job you do, you could be a teacher, you could be a missionary, you could be a doctor, All of those things. Paul was an apostle, by the way. But he was a bond slave to Christ. That's who he was. So separate what you do. I'm a pastor, but I'm first a bond slave to Christ. You know what's beautiful about that? It makes you a bond slave and I'm a bond slave. It kind of adds some brotherhood to us. Doesn't it? I mean, I can't say, oh, check it me. I've got fivefold gifting, you know. I'm a... Put the poster the banner up there and give yourself a title prophet so-and-so apostle so-and-so they've missed the point of the very gospel we believe in it should just be i'm paul a bond servant of christ called to be an apostle it's not my title pastor or, but i don't mind if you call me pastor out of respect that's just how your mom raised you and she raised you well <laughs> So here's where it comes from, here's where it comes from, Exodus chapter 21 and verse 2. Then going to read Exodus 21 verse 2 then verse 5 and 6. In Exodus 21 verse 2 we read, when you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. So you can purchase but it's a limited time deal you can get yourself a hebrew slave and this was to the instructions to god's people so god doesn't want slavery understand that like when you look at the whole course of the bible and history you'll understand that this was just something that their society was already doing people that were very indebted to somebody else would basically become indentured servants, which meant they had a debt to work off, and they belonged to their creditor, the person they owed money to. And so someone could actually lay a hold to someone's productivity and say, he will pay me back through labor, and I will have him for years until that debt is settled. And it could be the guy's whole life that he's enslaved. And so the Word of God comes through Moses and brings Moderation to what would have been exploitation and says, Hebrews, don't abuse Hebrews. You're actually from the same people of God. So when you buy a slave, when you have a slave, he can only be a slave for six years and the seventh is free. But now look at verse 5 of Exodus 21. Something peculiar happens. But if the slave plainly says, so he must make this declaration from a place of freedom, I love my master, my wife, and my children. I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl. That's a little piece of metal like a punch, like it stamps a hole. It's not this nice little pin that you do piercing your ears with. It's actually a hole that they shove the shape probably of like the master's favorite, like a triangle, if he likes triangles. Whatever his all is, that's the the hole you get in your ear. Lobe, they punch a hole through your ear, which obviously makes a permanent mark on you. And his master shall bore his ear through with an all, and he shall be his slave forever. Forever. No more freedom, no more... Jubilee, no more. What's going on here? I really. It jumped out at me in verse 5. Where the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children. Now, Hebrew people were much into hierarchy, eh? So sorry, babe. I love my master. Jesus. My wife and my children. So what happened is even in practical terms with an earthly master, a man might find a master who is so good that rather than go into the market again and try and compete with all the demands of the world in which he lives, he says, I feel safer with my master. I want to be his slave forever. This is interesting because as a Hebrew, you could have no education No social standing and you might find unemployment and you might suffer and go into debt and then you might find that your life sucks really bad, like you have no joy, no peace, no security, no prosperity and then you get in debt and then someone finally buys you from that guy and you're a slave and you owe this guy your your time and you work for him for six years and during that six years you discover he's a really good guy. He takes really good care of me. He feeds me. It was the responsibility of the master to care for the slave. He feeds me. I actually like the bed he gave me. Some masters just make you sleep on the ground. But I got a bed from this master. And this master's got financial security. And he's an honorable man. And he's not abusive. And when you come to that jubilee, or you know, it's whatever they called it, that seventh year. It's not really the jubilee 50th year. But come to that seventh year where you're now allowed to be free. You think... I'm terrified. I don't want to go back out there in the world. I have to find a job. I might be beaten and whipped and left in a ditch. I want to stay with this guy. He's a really good guy. So then you declare, I want to be your bond slave. If your master says yes, it's going to cost you a hole in the ear. You say, I'll pay it. You just take it, do it. I want to be yours forever because you look after me so well. I love my master. He's a good master. The slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children. I will not go out free. So why would you become a bond slave? You've been set free, but now you don't just stand in a worldly freedom. You're very vulnerable. And this is the problem with the world. People get freedom, but they're still vulnerable. They're vulnerable to temptation. They're vulnerable to addiction. They're vulnerable to uh, envy and and hatred and people mistreating them. They're vulnerable to all kinds of abuse. But now, you see your freedom was actually in this case with this good master that got you the last time. It was, there was a purchase price involved, a redemption price. And you see this master is good and you choose this master. And that's kind of the gospel. God sees you in slavery in the world and he comes and he says, I'm gonna ransom you, I'm gonna pay for your sins. You're in debt, you owe this debt to your master, the devil, to sin, to your your fall, you you're condemned, and God comes and he says, I'm going to I'm gonna pay for your sins, I'm gonna pay for your debt, I'm gonna redeem you, I'm gonna purchase you, and now you belong to me. And yet at the same time, inside of this description of bond slavery there is the i choose i choose and it very nicely parallels this endless debate between god's sovereignty and how free will and how your salvation really came about and it's like god comes and he purchases your freedom and then he actually says now you're free it's like the seventh year i paid for you you didn't work six years for me but you're free and then you say oh but you made me I'll, i'll choose you and you think you're choosing Jesus as your Savior, but He's choosing you and forgiving you. It's all woven together. And it's glorious. You choose, you volunteer for slavery. Scripturally, it's you volunteer. You've come from a place of freedom and you say, God, I choose you to be my master. You choose God for your master because you know Him to be good. And then He places His seal upon you. He puts His Holy Spirit in you as a deposit, as a token that you belong to Him, to say I have branded you as mine, I have marked you, we carry the mark of God, not the mark of the beast, so He gives you His Spirit, an incorruptible seal, proof of ownership, we see texts then like this in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And Ephesians 4 verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So what what does being a bond slave of Christ mean? Well, a good master is good to his bond slaves. The pictures and scripture we see of God is God is the lover of our souls. Do you get that? Like your master loves you, he's the lover of your soul. He is the new and better husband. So you might have been hurt by an earthly husband, but God to his bride, to Israel, to his people, the church, he's the perfect husband. He's the father who gives good gifts, he's better than the earthly father. It's the father that disciplines perfectly where the earthly father only disciplines as he sees fit, which could be too little or too much. But God comes as a perfect father. He's the friend who sticks closer than a brother. He's the shepherd king. He's the redeemer. He's the savior. He's a good master. He's a provider. He gives you what you need. He cares for you. It's very different from the mentality that you would serve Him so that He'd provide for you. Biblically, God actually provides for His children. They don't actually have to earn salvation. They don't have to earn forgiveness. They don't have to care for themselves. It's, Do not be anxious for anything, Jesus says. Do the birds worry? Does But even Solomon, in all his glory, couldn't look as good as the lilies of the field that God gives. It's like God is providing. And the encouragement then is that he is your master. and He is rich and richly able to provide for everything that you need in your life. But how will that come about when you turn to him as your master? When you say, God, be my master. Even as a believer, though, in, in, in objective, let's say, status, you are seated with Christ in heavenly places. God is your father and you are under his lordship. There's still a practical outworking of that, that we must, let's say, extend by faith in how we live our lives. So I'm saying, though factually I can say God is my master, I say practically I must also declare it and then live that way. So when I look at my financial burden, I say, God, this is not going to look good for you. It's like, Lord, if I'm not eating, this is not going to make your reputation as a master, very good if you're not caring for me. That's a bit presumptuous. Well, I don't say it out loud, but deep down in my heart, there is an expectation that God would look after me. There should be in your life as a Christian. You should trust God that He will provide for you everything you need. A husband, a wife, a job, not necessarily a car. He never promised cars. but all that you need. See, the master's reputation is at stake. I kind of mentioned this a bit a couple of weeks ago about Israel. If he has undernourished bond slaves, it says something about the master. This is why it was for his name's sake that Moses appealed to God not to destroy Israel. What would the nation say of Jehovah if he wiped out his own people? But this holds true today, for God is your master. That's why David could say in Psalm 37, I've been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. We should not be beggars, begging, because effectively what we're saying is, I've never trusted God to be my master, and I've taken it into my own hands to be my own provider. You should rather pray and starve to death, if God wants you to die. I don't think you'll die. I've been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. If you've ended up begging for bread, perhaps you've been attempting too much to be your own saviour and your own provider. I appeal to you, approach God with faith and carry a humble expectation that he will provide all you need according to his riches and mercy. God cares about His name and His reputation for those who are in covenant with Him, for those that belong to Him, irrespective of whether they do good or not. Look at Ezekiel 20 verse 44. I'm nearly finished. Ezekiel 20 verse 44 says, You shall know that I am the Lord when I deal with you for my name's sake, not according to your evil ways, nor according to your corrupt deeds, O house of Israel, declares the Lord God. God says, even though you are not faithful, not honorable, not doing everything right, the, because you are my people, for my name's sake, for my name's sake, I'll deal with you. And God does that with our lives as Christians. He says, I'm going to father you even if you're a rebel child. I'm, you're still going to be my child. So why not then respond? Why not then respond? So, lastly, a bond slave was good to his master. A bond slave had surrendered his own authority. He had none. He was lowest. Yet he could carry authority given to him. He was a trusted slave, one bound over till death. And this meant being owned, not loaned to his master, he could represent his master. He could be sent on errands, not his own. Not his own errands. He could be on the errand of his master. He could be like an ambassador being sent somewhere to represent someone. God would send you in his great commission. His will was given over to the will of his master. And that was perfectly modeled by Jesus. So if you look at the life of Jesus, you actually say, he was actually saying to his father, I am your servant. Not my will, but yours be done. And of course as servants we deny ourselves certain freedoms and we live to please our master. In this life we make tough choices sometimes. We choose not to run after the things of the world because we belong to Jesus. Galatians 5 verse 24 says, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. I am crucified with Christ, I no longer live. That's what scripture says. So if you're still thinking about how you can live your life, you need to grow spiritually and say, Jesus, I want to lay down my life. I want to live for you. After that, he's going to give you great stuff to do anyway. You're still going to watch movies and eat pizza sometimes. Don't worry, he doesn't take you out of this world. He leaves you in this world and he says, just don't be of this world. Don't get consumed by it. Don't live for it doesn't mean that you stop eating and you live in a monastery and only fast. But for me, what this really means is security. I don't know how vulnerable you feel in your life. At times we all feel very vulnerable. For me, there is huge security in knowing I am owned by God. That I am not free. That I belong to Him. And that the onus is on Him. The burden is on Him to care for me. This is where the truth of the Bible trumps the philosophical ideas of man. We don't worship a hollow freedom. We find our worth in the worship of God. I know I'm created to worship. I know I'm going to be a slave. I'm glad to be a slave of God. I will worship Him. I'm not going to worship freedom as a concept in itself. There isn't really freedom is slavery to sin or there's slavery to god who will be your master who will be your master let's pray